Hey everybody, I'm Anne from Moms Unpacking Autism, where we share a humorous, real, raw look at mothering the autistic child. Today, my friend Stacy couldn't be with us, so I thought I'd give you a background into my story into autism. Some of the things I've learned, some of the insights, some of the cues I missed along the way, and other things that may help you as you too parent your autistic child. My child is 24 years old right now. She's, well, she'll be 24 in a few weeks. I, I'm kind of looking ahead. <laughs> so I have 24 years of experience of parenting an autistic child. Uh, but I didn't know that she was on the spectrum until she was 11, but there were some signs. So I kind of want to walk you through what it was like when she was growing up. So way back in 1995, my daughter was born and I had had another girl two years prior. So I kind of was comparing my daughter to what my other daughter was doing and it was different. I remember early on as a baby, she, well, she made these funny animal noises and I thought that was really humorous. And she wouldn't look at me when I talked to her. She kind of looked at me out of the corner of her eye, like kind of like that. And I thought that little stinker, she is playing a game with me. She doesn't want to give me the satisfaction of looking at me. Now, why I thought that she was a little stinker when she was like two months old or four months old is beyond me because kids don't process that way. They don't play games like that at that age. But I didn't understand why she wasn't really looking at me when I talked to her. She would look past me or she would look sideways at me. She didn't really respond face to face with me the way my other daughter had. So that should have been a sign. Uh, now, if I see a baby that kind of looks at you out of their corner of their eye, I'm always suspect. Are they on the autistic spectrum? At that point, I, I just thought she was being a stinker. Another thing she did that was um, disconcerting to me was that she was in the rocking chair, all the, not the rocking chair, the swing. She just wanted to sit in the swing. And I remember watching an Oprah show once where they had this mother that had the kid in the swing all the time and you know they were a bad parent. And I was really convicted because this child only wanted to be in the swing. If I took her out of the swing and held her, she cried. She never wanted to be held. Never, unless she was nursing. And then she was a bottomless pit. She would drink and drink and drink and drink and drink until I was dry, like she couldn't get enough. And, and she'd squeeze and she'd pull and she'd bite and she'd gum. And if she wanted something to eat, she'd crawl up to me and bite my leg or bite me in the cheek really, really hard. And I didn't really understand that those were all signs that she could be on the autistic spectrum was about at 10 months that she had, um, I noticed something when I was feeding her. I started these new vitamins and she suddenly kind of came to life and became much more alert than she was before then. And I was a little bit intrigued as to why these vitamins made her kind of perk up and seem a little more alive. I also remember that if I gave her bread of any kind, like a toast, 
she would almost act insane. Like it was almost, I used to say, in fact, I felt like her brain was swelling and she would just act a little bit insane. It obviously was an inflammatory food for her and she would act up because she ate it. Now, those were some of the really early signs I saw as a baby. And, you know, again, when you have a baby, you're not looking for signs of autism, especially back then. You know, 1995 autism, I think in girls, they had a number like one in 65,000 girls may be on the autistic spectrum. Um, now, of course, they're coming up with a number one in 50 kids is the, on, the, on the autistic spectrum. And I did hear a figure years ago, and it could be wrong, that basically it was going to be 50% of the kids were going to be on the autistic spectrum by 2025, which is only a few years away. So this is a big deal right now. And part of the reason it's a big deal is our society is not equipped to handle this on so many levels. And Stacy and I, I'm sure, are going to talk about that a whole lot. So I'm not even going to bother getting into that. She has a lot of thoughts, and, and uh, together we like to bang that stuff out. But um, let me go back to my story. So let's go to about age one. Uh, yeah, maybe we go to age two. I remember when she started to walk. She walked like she had a load in her pants. So it was just this really funny walk. And I remember saying to the doctor, there's something wrong with her walk. There's something going on. And they're like, no, that's just a normal walk for a kid her age. It'll settle out. But it never did. She never walked right. In fact, we used to carry her a lot when she was um, like three and four because she just walked so slowly. And she used to say her feet hurt and her feet were flat and her legs were kind of splayed. And uh, again, though, I'd take her to the doctor and they'd be like, no, we don't see anything wrong. She's fine. So I was getting really frustrated because I couldn't get to the bottom of things. I remember, too, she would get herself out of bed. She was pretty much toilet trained at around two and a half. So nothing too alarming. Her verbal skills came in just when they should have. Uh, so she wasn't slow with her verbal skills. In fact, she was more advanced in her use of words, her use of vocabulary than most people. Even to this day, she's extremely advanced and um, really insightful. But when she was really young, she would get out of bed in the middle of the night. It would be about four in the morning and she would have a bowel movement. Something would jar her. She would get out of bed. She would start spinning in circles and she had this little um, pony that had that lit up and it had these little, um, I don't know, this little song. And she'd get out of bed and she'd just spin like this and then she'd spin in circles as she danced. And I would wake up in the middle of the night and I'd hear this noise coming from her room because she had her own room. And I'd go over there and I'd see her spinning. A lot of times she got into her diaper and spread everything all over the place. Um, you know, real sensory integration kind of issues. When we put her to bed, here was another cue. We had some really rigid behavior. So when we put her down to bed, she had a routine that had to be followed. So you'd have to lay her down in bed and then she'd want the blanket up right here and it had to be folded over just right. And then she'd have Baby. She had the Snicklefritz cat that she called Baby and that was her best friend. And she put Baby on her chest 
And then all her little stuffed animals had to be laid down in a certain order right next to her. And they had to have, um, they had to be right under the blanket at the right place. And then baby herself had a washcloth that went over her that was her blanket. And then she'd say, I need sips which meant she wanted a drink of water. So we'd give her this little drink of water and baby needs sips. So we'd have to give baby sips and then we'd have to give all the little stuffed animal sips. And then we'd have to sing with her. So we'd sing like the same two or three songs every night. We'd all lay on the floor and sing those songs together. And then she would go to bed. But if she got up, which usually I would say nine times out of 10, she'd get right up out of bed and then she'd come lay down in bed again and go through the whole thing all over again. So my dog is gonna be a problem. I cannot believe this. No, she thinks that when I'm home alone, I have to get her something. So those were some of the things that, that kind of you know gave me pause, but I still didn't think she was autistic. Another thing she did that was really interesting was this baby, right? Baby, this stuffed animal. Bella, come here. Come here. Stop it. No, no, no. So baby was this stuffed animal and baby would um, talk for her. So she'd want, she'd give her some food at dinner and she'd go, no, baby doesn't like that food. And then if you gave her something else, she'd go, oh, baby's favorite food. Baby likes this food. And then she'd eat it. Or songs. Baby doesn't like that song. Baby doesn't like that song. Oh, baby's favorite song. And then she'd dance. But she she never said it was her favorite song or her favorite food. And once in a while, I'd say, you mean your favorite food? And she'd say, no, baby's favorite food. And she'd get really, really mad. She also got really, really mad if we misunderstood her. So if you said, um, um, oh, you mean this? She'd go, no, and she'd scream and yell and cry and get really mad because we didn't understand her. You know, sometimes she'd haul off and punch us or, or hit us or bite us because we didn't know what she meant. Yeah, that was a sign. She also, um, didn't know how to play with other kids. So her play was very parallel. So we'd, we'd have her in a group of kids her own age, and she'd kind of sit off, even if she was in the middle of them, she'd sit off and not talk to them, kind of ignore them and just play with her own thing. But she wasn't really good at playing. You know, with my older daughter, I could give her this dollhouse and she could, you know, pretend the people, these, this is mommy and daddy and these are the kids and this is what they're doing or, you know, this is their pet and they're going to go on a little trip. But my Cammy couldn't do that. She was not able to make up stories and follow it through. It seemed that she always needed to have everything defined for her and scheduled out for her. So um, those were the toddler years. Those were some of my concerns. When um, a few people said to us at one point, she seems to have sensory integration disorder because she didn't like the way her clothes felt on her. She didn't like it when I combed her hair. That was, you know, just 
terrible for her and I'd love to have her with long hair because she had the prettiest hair and but she couldn't comb it so I had to cut it short because she would scream um so you know that was everything was like not fitting right or, or didn't feel good or you know so someone said it sounds like she has sensory integration disorder so we um got her tested for kindergarten when she was four and they said she was ready to go to kindergarten but they did say that her um, motor skills her fine motor skills were lacking so we should work with her on using scissors and using a pencil but else she would be fine to go to kindergarten so um let's see she turned five in the summer and that following fall she went to kindergarten and again they talked about her motor skills she really did very well in school. She was a smart kid, uh, except for the motor skills. She did pretty well. Even in kindergarten, she was able to make friends because at that point, friendship was more parallel play and more having things in common. Uh, she had a best friend and that best friend she fought with like the Dickens. And I, I noticed this as she was growing up, she'd have like one best friend that was more like a sister that she just couldn't get along with. She loved them, but she couldn't give and take. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking of a birthday party that we had for her when she was eight and they all gave her toys and then they wanted to play with the toys and she didn't want them to play with the toys. And she had a hairy fit. And as a mother, I was mortified and embarrassed because you know my daughter was not sharing and she was screaming and yelling and crying and i just really couldn't couldn't rectify that and i couldn't help her you know whenever i tried to talk to her she would get really escalated i couldn't calm her down she and the more that i try to discipline her or guide her she would become defiant and um almost violent and i didn't know what to do you know, I could not figure out what was wrong with her. So at one point, we um, got her some skills at school and they suggested since she was sensory integration, she should go get some OT. So we would go to OT and she would swing in a swing and kind of, you know, throw things and they'd work on her fine motor skills and some of her gross motor skills and they'd work on her motion and swinging always calmed her down no matter where she was swinging was the thing that she really enjoyed doing um but in second grade we started having some trouble because the work was becoming a little more it was just a little harder she uh, the teacher expected more of her and she was slower her processing speed was slower and this was becoming more and more apparent plus she was very add so she had a hard time focusing on um, her assignment if there were active boys that's what she always called them active boys next to her and so when there were boys that were kind of busy cammy couldn't focus on her assignment she couldn't get her classwork done so then they keep her in during recess to get her classwork done but of course she had probably three hours of classwork that needed to get done in a 15 20 minute recess she never could and then that would come home with her as homework so she wouldn't get any time off during the day because she'd go to school and then she'd have to work through recess and lunch and then she would have to take it home and work on it all night we'd you know pull out our hair all night and then the next day it would happen again so when she'd get in the car at the end of school she'd just scream ah! you know how was your day ah! 
And she just cry and cry and cry every day. And then she was unbearably uncontrollable for the whole rest of the night. And I didn't know what to do with her because I'd go to her teachers and I'd say, there is a problem here. And they'd say, she's perfect in class. She's fine. I don't even know what you're talking about. She's so compliant. You know, she's such a great student. She's really smart. Um, she doesn't want to get her classwork done, but you know, and I'd be like, there's, there's just something wrong. <sighs> and I was so frustrated because now we're at the age of seven, eight, and we're still dealing with this and it's getting worse as school's going on. And I'm still saying there is something going on here, but we weren't people made of a lot of money. We didn't have four to eight grand to go shell out on a lot of testing. And there still wasn't a lot of, of information about autism back then. You know, now we're looking at the early 2000s and it still was very rare that a child was on the autistic spectrum. Now, the interesting thing is that we hung out with this whole group of people in this community that we lived in and we were all friends and our kids were all friends and we lived by a lake. So every summer we'd hang out at the beach all summer, even in the rain and um, became really close. And what we did eventually figure out was in each family, almost each family, there was at least one um, out of sync child, as we called them at that point. And um, it was interesting this because we could kind of swap stories and swap ideas. And that's how Stacy and I met, actually, because we were part of that same group. And Cammie and her daughter Molly were really good friends. And so um, there was a lot of solitude in that. There was a lot of camaraderie. It was really a great thing to be supported by other parents and say, yeah, you know, we're having these problems and we don't know what to do. And that kind of armed us to go into the schools and say, hey, there's an issue. So uh, finally, I took, we took Cammy to a neuropsych and we drove her an hour away. We spent money out of her own pocket to go do this and have her tested. And the neuropsych was uh, a man, um, and she had fear of men. And we got to the office and he interviewed us and she sat on her lap and didn't want to move. At this point, she was second grade, seven or eight years old. And um, then he said, I want to meet with Cammie alone. And Cammie went ballistic. She started crying and crying and crying and crying and screaming. And he couldn't even test her because she was screaming so loud. And I was so frustrated because here we were paying this big bill and he couldn't even get the tests out of her. He did do things like have her stand and see what her balance was. Um, he did a few motor skills kind of things. He tried to ask her questions when we were with her. But at, by that point, he said, I can't do anything with her. I can't do any more testing. And so he called us into the office and he said, she's autistic. And we were just floored because there was always this little part of me that thought she was autistic maybe, but then the schools would say to me, no, she's fine. She's just a little shy or she's just a little sensory, you know, integration issues or something. But when he said she's autistic, I flipped out and I cried the whole way home. And I thought, there is no way she is autistic. There is no way someone would have picked up on this. No one has picked up on this. All these times I've had her tested for things, no one has said anything. 
So I went to the special ed woman at school and she says, no, she's not autistic. She's just sensory integration disorder. So then I decided that that guy must be, you know, a fraud or, or just not good at what he's doing. So um, then we get her tested for Ehlers-Danlos, Ehlers-Danlos. I forgot what it's called. Anyway, it's this issue where your skin pigmentation is really light and you can see your veins through it and your joints um, are not really developed well. They're kind of loose because her joints were very loose. She was double jointed in a lot of areas. She could do things with her hands and legs that were just kind of a little bit alarming and her joints were always snapping in and out. So we thought, well, maybe that's what's going on, but that didn't seem what was going on. Uh, the way she held her body, people suggested maybe she had some cerebral palsy, um, but that didn't, they, they never really followed that up or checked that out. It didn't really seem like that was, was what was going on. So we continued with OT. We were giving her at this point breaks in school. So um, she would be taken out of class maybe for 10 minutes in the morning to have a little sensory break where they'd do some exercises where they'd cross her arms and her legs and try to, you know, get her brain wired to, to cross again. Because, uh, you know, they did notice the rigid behavior by that point. But we still had it. She'd get into the car after school and scream and yell and just be really unbearable the whole evening. So it was... Okay, it was such a puzzle and I just didn't know what to do. And I remember thinking, and this sounds so terrible, but I remember thinking, I'm in over my head. I, I, I don't even like this child half the time because my life has been taken over and I can't do this. You know, I signed up to be a parent. And um, when I signed up to be a parent, I thought it was just for quote, normal kids. And I had babysat when I was young and I thought I can handle a child or two. Now, another thing that really complicated this was I had chronic fatigue syndrome. And at the age of 27, before children, right before I got married, I got mono and it turned into this long drawn out autoimmune disorder that uh, basically I was bedridden for five years. Uh, then I finally had children and it was really hard to have the children because I had no energy. If they slept, I slept. And when I had two kids that pushed me over the edge because they never slept at the same time. And uh, Kristen was very active and social and Cammy was uh, how I've described. So I just didn't even know how to, to pull this all together, how to do this, how to have the energy to do this. I, I was on a very strict, um, healthy diet that I fed Kristen. Cami, all she wanted was macaroni and cheese. That's all she wanted, like forever and ever. And and um, and um, those little dinosaurs that look like chicken tenders. That's all she wanted. That was all she'd eat. And of course, that was baby's favorite food. And I, I was just kind of beside myself at this point. My husband was gone 12 to 14 hours a day working. And I was dealing with this. So thank goodness for my girlfriends. Thank goodness for Stacy and and Donna and Faye and you know we and Mary Beth. We had a good thing going here, but it was it was it was really rough. Um, so then 
we continued at one point, I think it was about fourth or fifth grade, Cammie suddenly blossomed where she was and started making friends. She made this group of friends at school. She, she geniusly pulled it from new kids that started coming to the school. She would welcome them into this little fold. And she was really good friends with uh, this girl, Mariah. But Mariah was very active playing kickball and softball. And Cammie wasn't physically able to do that stuff. So Cammie would sit on a swing. Mariah would play games. Cammie would be alone. So when she started gathering these other girls to her, like Stacy's daughter, Molly, and other people, Cammie had this really nice social life. And she'd go over people's homes. And, and they had this kind of playtime. And these semi-meaningful relationships and it was just a really great thing but unfortunately every good thing comes to an end and we moved so one of our problems was going to be that the school system that we were in was good and when they were going to go on to junior high it wasn't going to be that good and our daughter had now graduated from this good school system and we wanted, she was very bright. We wanted to make sure she ended up in a good school system. So we ended up moving to North Carolina. And at that time, we decided to get Cami tested again. We found another person that could test her and they did a whole heap of tests. It was $4,000 out of our pocket. Again, we really didn't have that money. And um, when they tested her, they said, well, she's got some executive function issues and she has high anxiety. And we're not sure if the anxiety comes from the executive function or if the anxiety is masking something else, but what we're picking up on is anxiety. So I said, okay, anxiety. So we moved down to North Carolina and we went to Duke University and got involved in a study for anxiety in kids. And she was accepted into that study. And in that study, they kind of um, did this, this kind of blind study where you'd either get placebos of a, um, kind of Zoloft, Cetra, Selen kind of um, medication, so an antidepressant, anti-anxiety, or you'd get therapy, or you'd get both, um, and either the placebo or the real drug. So she was actually selected to get the real drug and the therapy and the help. So for 10 months, she worked with a therapist on anxiety and he did things like uh, confronted her fear of heights and then took her on top of a big building and um, worked with her on calling people on the phone or ordering things in the restaurant. And in the meantime, she was on this medication. Uh, at the end of that 10 months, they did not see the results that they wanted to see. And so that psychologist took me aside and said to me, you know, I really believe she has Asperger's. Um, this is why she has anxiety and we can try to continue to treat the anxiety, but the underlying problem is Asperger's and that's what really needs to be addressed. So at that point, I bought every book I could on Asperger's. By this time, she's 11 years old. Okay, 11 years old. For 11 years, I had been going here and there and everywhere looking for an answer. And she was 11 years old and I read every book I could get my hands on and I cried for five days. I just cried and cried and cried and cried. I cried because she was described perfectly in those books. I cried because I finally had an answer and I was relieved. And I cried because, oh crap, 
this is real and this is an issue and there's nothing I can do about it. And then I cried because early intervention is the best and I had missed all these years of early intervention because nobody listened to me. You know, I used to get people saying things to me like, well, you can't expect her to be like your sister. She's a different person. And and I'd say, it, it's not even that. I'm not expecting her to be like her sister, but there's something going on. And I knew in my heart there was something going on. But it was, it was just, I didn't have the money I needed. I didn't have the support I needed. And she was doing so well in school, the schools didn't want to mess with her. You know, she was getting B's. Well, this kid is brilliant. She can get A's. Like if you tell her something once, she's got it. So getting B's was not her best. Getting B's showed that there was a problem because she could have been getting A's. But then, you know, people think, oh, well, you're a parent. You just think your kid is smarter than they are. You know, you're not really understanding their limitations. And, you know, and as a young mom, do you really know what you're doing? I mean, we're all, let's face it, we're all in there over our head. And, you know, what are you supposed to do? I, I So, you know, even as I'm telling you this, I'm kind of... I'm reliving it and, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was really hard time. So then we get this autism diagnosis unofficial from the psychologist. It it wasn't her job to diagnose her with that. She was working on the Duke study. So she suggested that since we were in North Carolina and there were so many things available to kids on the autistic spectrum there in Wake County, that we could um, we could find some testing and some help. So uh, the problem was you had to go through the school system and the school system refused to test her because she was getting good grades. And so we'd have to fight with that. And by this time we did have an IEP. The IEP gave her extra time on tests so that she wouldn't be um, anxious on the tests. She didn't use the extra time half the time. Um, We also arranged for her to take her tests in another room so she wouldn't be distracted by the active boys. And uh, that seemed to work for her. And again, you know, her grades were like B's, uh, but she could have done so much better. And we could not get them to test. Finally, we get some testing done and um, they do come back with, well, maybe it's... uh, PDDD, you know, and she's got definite um, nonverbal learning disorder, which is the opposite of what you think it is. The nonverbal learning is uh, when you actually are good verbally, but it sounds like you don't know how to use your words. So there was some confusion in there, and I didn't, you know, and and we're still doing the IEP, and they said, well, she's doing good in school. We're just going to keep her going. And uh, what I wanted was additional testing. So then we went to someone else, and uh, she did test her pretty unofficially, but she said she couldn't test her completely officially without the school paying for it, and the school wouldn't pay for it. So um, she said, after talking to her, she said, yeah, um, definitely, she's got Asperger's you know, undeniably, but as long as she's doing good in the school, they're just not going to push it. So we dealt with that. Then now we're through our first year of um, high school and she's doing well in high school because it was very much teaching this subject matter and filling out worksheets according to what they taught. She knew what to expect. She didn't have to do a lot of uh, reasoning. She didn't even have to advocate for herself. 
Um, socially, though, she was struggling because we were in a county that kept changing her in middle school. So um, she went to one middle school and made a friend. And the next year they transferred her to a new middle school. So here she and this other friend who might may have been on the spectrum too, I don't know, but they had this little connection. Suddenly they were torn apart. Cami was thrust into a whole new group of kids in seventh grade who initially embraced her. But then as they started to see she was different, they started to reject her. She started to get bullied. Um, third year of school, they wanted to put her in a totally different school. And we fought that one and kept her in the same school. I really wish we could have kept her in the first school. Um, you know, part of the problem that we were having too is some of these schools were going year round and then other schools were going, um, the year round schedule was there to help with all the parents that were working. And we didn't want Cammie in a year round school and Kristen in a traditional school schedule because then our, um, our vacations would never align. We wouldn't get to visit family. So we chose to keep Cami in a traditional school system, but then she lost you know, her initial friend and then she didn't make more friends. And by her freshman year in high school, I think she made a few friendish people, she called them, but she kind of started getting in with um, a crowd that I don't think was, was too great. So at that point, we decided to move to New England uh, put both our girls in a private school and um, she did have a few friends, um, a few friends that she actually knew early on. Um, but I think that she struggled really with fitting in and really feeling connected through the rest of high school. So um, even the private school was a little bit initially reluctant to take her because they thought that her educational needs would be bigger than they were. As it turned out, she did very well in school, um, except that when we got to age 16, she started having some really big depressive episodes. And... Um, in her depressive episodes, she would just shut down and not be able to function. And right now she's in community college. She works two jobs. One of her jobs, interestingly enough, is working with autistic children. And she's just started that job. Uh, she's working with a little girl who seems to be very similar to um, what her profile would have been at that age. So that's a, kind of an interesting development. Um, she does live at home and, uh, so we do have some challenges there and, um, yeah, that's kind of my autistic story with my daughter and I'm sure through the weeks and the years, as we talk about this, we'll be unpacking some of the themes that went on, um, some of the frustrations, you know, it's not, the school said to me once, you know, after she got the, the uh, diagnosis, they said, what's the difference? She's still the same person you've had. And yes, that's true. The diagnosis didn't take her away from me. She's still the same daughter I loved and always will love. Um, I guess I was hoping the diagnosis would give me extra tools to help um, and they did, and they didn't. And 
uh, I guess until you have that diagnosis, you're always magically hoping that there's um, there's been a mistake and you've just done something wrong. I always wanted to believe that it was my parenting style. I would, didn't follow a routine enough because I'm more, I'm I'm very free spirited, artistic, a little bit ADD. I fly around a little bit, so I didn't keep that structure and that routine that's so important for kids and especially kids on the autistic spectrum. I I did that to the best of my ability, but I didn't do that completely. Um, she also was kind of a thermostat for the family. So if we had stress, she would act it out. And uh, sometimes our stress was a result of trying to figure out what to do with her. And sometimes our stress was completely unrelated to her, but we had a lot of stress as she grew up. And, um, you know, so then I wanted to blame myself for that. Maybe we were too stressful or maybe I wasn't structured enough or maybe we weren't strict enough or her father and I weren't together on her enough. And, um, you know, we weren't, we weren't at all agreed. You know, I kept saying there's something wrong and he kept saying there's nothing wrong. So we had that conflict going on. Um, and that got really ugly sometimes. And so I thought maybe that was something that really influenced her. Um, and sure, maybe it all did. But by the time there was this diagnosis, I realized that there was this neurological wiring component that happened years ago. And, and I could see some strains of that running in the different family systems. And, um, and so I knew that it was bigger than me or what I did or didn't do. So yeah, you know, um, if you're watching me and you have a child that you suspect is on the autistic spectrum, um, or you know for sure has autism, and you don't have the money to get them tested, at least there's a lot of things these days. And, and it seems like the more severe, the easier it is to get some kind, kind of diagnosis. So, and, and, and early on, you know, I know a lot of parents now who are, are dealing with their kids and they're just young and they're taking them to all these, these scheduled training sessions, trying to, trying to help move them ahead. I guess if I was going to say anything that I thought helped me in this time, I think diet is hugely important. And I'm sure I'll talk about that way more. Um, what I found with the chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia I had, I pretty much reversed the illness with a proper diet. And that proper diet meant no sugar. That proper diet meant uh, no gluten. I had a gluten insensitivity. And that would lead me to believe that my daughter does too. I had lactose issues and my other daughter definitely has those issues, so Cammie could too. There are a lot of food sensitivities that can cause inflammation and that inflammation can cause trouble even in the brain and the way you're functioning or the way you're angry or, um, or ADD. Uh, there's, there's so many things that they're finding out these days. So. I would say check that out and, and be really diligent and serious about it. And I know it's really hard to keep your little kid from eating that birthday cake. Um, and it's really hard to program them. But what I'm finding is if you program them young, 
it's easier later on. And there's a lot of battles that you just don't bother fighting. And there's a lot of times you give in and later on they come back to kick you because they now are ingrained in their whole, their whole personhood. And then to change that is almost impossible. You know, when you have a child that's going to be more rigid, uh, more resistant to change, you've got to hit it early on because later it's going to come back on you. Um, and if you're doing it for their own good, you know, maybe you feel sorry that they can't have that piece of birthday cake and they're screaming and flailing their arms and yelling. But later on, you know, if they're not 400 pounds overweight and... Um, dealing with a sugar addiction and a carbohydrate addiction and uh, pacifying themselves with food, um, you're going to be glad that that you taught them those habits early on. It's, I'm not saying it's going to work, but you know sometimes it's worth a try. So that's the end of my episode today. Um, I thank you for listening. If you've listened all the way through, I have a lot more fun doing this with Stacy. We have a great relationship and like to do a lot of laughing and she has a lot of interesting stories. So please stay tuned and come back when we're both here and we'll catch you later. Thanks a lot. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe and hit the bell so that you can get all of our shows, all of our, all of our episodes, and um, please give us a thumbs up. Thanks. Take care.